I think any thinking being would worry and, and be concerned about what is our role on the planet? And where did we come from? Where are we going to go to? And what is our purpose in the in-between time? Bienvenue and welcome to Cirque du Sound, a sonic trip brought to you by Cirque du Soleil, where we redefine the boundaries of creativity with some of today's most forward thinkers, doers, and creators. My name is Michel Laprise. I'm the creative guide of Cirque du Soleil. We have award-winning, heart-stopping, and mind-expanding shows at Cirque du Soleil that are inspired by how creativity intersects with other disciplines, even ones that aren't traditionally viewed as creative. The ideas for our shows, the, the emotions, the references, they can come from anywhere. For example, we get a lot of ideas for shows just by thinking about big questions. Things like, what is the origin of human life? What role do people play in the universe? And of course, we aren't the only people to ask these questions, so we're very interested with other people's perspectives on those questions. Almost every ancient civilization tried to explore those questions and unpack the mysteries of the universe. Today, much like our ancestors, we continue to search for meaning, and this search inspires our creativity. But perhaps, unlike our ancestors, we can also look back, way back into the past. Using science and technology, we can delve deep into the archaeological records. We can examine the lessons buried in these ancient civilizations, the mysteries contained within the traces they left behind. And nowhere would you find more powerful lessons about our origins than the ones buried deep underneath what once was ancient Egypt. Today on the show, we're going to be speaking with a famous archaeologist, someone who knows a lot about the mysteries of Egypt, and I'm going to be asking her, how does being curious about the mysteries of the past and the origins of human life help us better understand our present and who we are today? Right now in the background, you're hearing the music of one of our most famous shows, Mistam. And our composers are René Dupéré as the main composer, and Benoît Jutra composed a few tracks of that show. Listen to that beautiful music. Mistam, one of my favorite shows, is a colorful show. It's very playful. It's filled with death-defying stunts performed by our amazing acrobats and beautiful visuals. And the music is, as you can hear, is world beat and a very rich, very deep, timeless. The name Mystère means mystery in French, and the show, just like our everyday lives, is filled with mysteries. The show dances around the questions of the origins of human life, it invites you to explore the deep mysteries of the past with a childlike sense of wonder. I am so thrilled and honored to introduce to you Dr. Salima Ikram, a professor, archaeologist, 
author and the founder of the Animal Mummy Project at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Hello, Dr. Salima Ikram. Welcome to Sound to Sound. Hello, very nice to be here. Thank you, Michel. Dr. Salima, you're really well established in the world of archaeology, specifically Egyptology. You've written research papers and you've been featured in a lot of documentaries on Netflix, the BBC, the Discovery Channel, and so much more. You spend most of your life living in the past, <laughs> trying to uncover all the secrets the ancient Egyptians left behind. So before we get into the origins of life and all those ancient secrets, I have to ask you, what made you interested in studying our Egyptology in the first place? I'm afraid I don't have a very noble <laughs> response to that. What just happened was that when I was a child, when I was nine years old, I fell in love with ancient Egypt, first by reading a book hmm. and then by visiting Egypt. And I never fell out of love. Hmm. So I guess like some people say when they meet you, oh, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And you say, what do you do? They're a bank manager. You think, oh, I'm so sorry. You grew up, but I didn't. I think it's just such a romantic thing to do, to delve into the past, hmm. to excavate, to explore, to have adventures. It's a great privilege. Sifting through all these layers of history, because there's many layers, how do you know where to begin? Like, what thread do you pull first? It's quite complicated. I suppose it depends on what your question is. So sometimes, of course, you, you go to a place, like I work in the Western Desert of Egypt, the Eastern Sahara, and parts of it have never been explored archaeologically. So for there, the first thing you're doing is just looking and mapping and trying to figure out when you find traces of human intervention to figure out what people were doing there, when were they doing it and how things changed. So there we have remains that date back to, you know, 10,000, 15,000 BC and then they go all the way into 1400 AD. So looking at how the environment changed, how people used the area, And the interaction between human beings and the landscape is fascinating because it really encapsulates so much of human history in one small part of the world. Wow, fascinating. You are the leading expert on animal mummies. Why did ancient Egyptians mummify animals? What does it tell us about them? Well, the animal mummies are fascinating because there are so many different types. Of course, they're pets. And even now, you know, you love your pets. And so the Egyptians would bury them so that they could have an afterlife together with their pets. Then they're food mummies, which the Egyptians would mummify bits of food. So you could have a picnic in the afterlife. You never were going to be hungry. <laughs> Did they have food for the animals too? Yes, there were cats that were buried with little sources of milk oh, and oh. dogs that had food put before them. Really? Wow. Yeah. No, it's, it's adorable. And it, it tells you about the intimacy of the relationship between humans and animals. And of course, the ancient Egyptians believed that animals had souls. And then the, the more common animal mummies that we have actually, or not common, we have more of them, sacred animals. The idea was that each god had a totemic creature and the spirit of the god would enter into the body of one specially marked animal. And then during that animal's lifetime, it would be revered as a god. It wow. would have oracular power. Priests would interpret what, you know, if the animal 
bent its head, how it made a noise, whether it switched its tail, any of these things. And upon its death, it would be mummified and the country would go into mourning and there would be a big procession and a burial. Really? And then wow. the spirit of the god would enter the body of another similarly marked animal and the cycle would be repeated. And what would be the <laughs> signs that would tell people like this animal is the chosen one? I think sometimes it would be the markings on the animal or maybe markings. there would be a certain, you know, there would be a, a storm or a, some sort of natural phenomenon that was extraordinary that would give a sense that maybe this is the place where this animal is. Well, it's so theatrical. I mean, an animal dies in a whole country, a whole kingdom yeah. is in mourning. Yeah. Wow. It is. And then, of course, the last and most common kinds of animal mummy are votive offerings. So, you know, and sometimes you go to a church and you light a candle uh -huh. and your prayer goes up in smoke. The Egyptians believed in the long term. So they would take an animal supposing for the cat goddess and they would sacrifice it and have it mummified. And so that would be a perpetual prayer for the, that person in front of the goddess. So we have millions and millions of ibises and dogs and cats and all kinds of creatures that are really the manifestations of prayers wow. of the ancient Egyptians. And wow. We do have some buried elephants, but by the time a lot of these traditions, this religious tradition started, the elephants had already moved south into what is now the Sudan. Ah. So we have some elephant burials, but it's not a big cult thing. We don't have big giraffe burials. They only came in later on as zoo animals. And I mentioned that our show, Mystère, has a lot to do with the origins of human life and how humans understand their own role in the universe. What did the ancient Egyptians think of the big existential questions like that? What do we know about their own creation stories, the origin stories they believed? We have actually a few variants uh -huh. on the origin stories, and they all sort of link together. But there are variations. And in fact, there was, you know, darkness and there was chaos and there was a big ocean Hmm. And out of it came the first land, and the god appeared. And, you know, then there's this whole sort of different versions, but basically the creation of the separation between the sky and the earth, water and air, moisture, light and dark. So all of these things that you, in fact, later on see in the monotheistic religions, yeah. all have their origins in the ancient Egyptian creation myths. First, the god thought something. Then it was spoken. Once it was spoken, it came into being. So it is extraordinary to see how for thousands of years, different cultures have really come up with the same idea mm -hmm. for the creation of the world. Wow. Why do you think humans have always been fascinated with understanding these big questions? Like why are we here and What is our relationship with the universe? Why are we so fascinated by that? I think any thinking being would worry and, and be concerned about what is our role on the planet? Uh -huh. And, you know, where did we come from? Where are we going to go to? And what is our purpose in the in-between time, which is the time we are most conscious of? And people who might think that there is the need to do in a way to differentiate ourselves 
from other creatures by having aspirations or doing something astonishing. And I think that is where so much human creativity comes from. I think it's a deliberate, I mean, that's the creativity that we have is a deliberate answer because we are trying to leave something behind. Or even whether it's creativity for technology, it's trying to improve things. And that you get to some extent in the other animals. But doing something that is aesthetic, something that is beautiful, purely for delight and pleasure, is something that is seems to be, so far, uniquely human. Mm-hmm. You've worked on a lot of documentaries. One of them is The Story of God with Morgan Freeman by National Geographic. While working on that documentary, apparently you told Morgan Freeman something I find quite fascinating. You said... Being an archaeologist means that you never have to grow up and the past is always part of the present. I love that you said that because one thing that we tried to do in our show, Mister, is bringing people back to a childhood sense of wonder. Back to when you were first exploring the world and there were no bounds to your curiosity and everything was just so big. It seems to me that you approach your work with the same wonder, that sense of fun and exploration. I'm looking at you, you have a big smile, your eyes are are shining when you speak about your work. So that sense of fun and exploration that we all had when we were children, how do you cultivate that? I have to say that I'm lucky because of what I'm looking at. Everything is always a new discovery. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to find things out. I think one can be an archaeologist if one has a lot of curiosity. It is a wondrous thing. And ancient Egypt is an extraordinary civilization, whether it is you're looking at something minute, like model vessels that they make, or whether it's something as awe-inspiring as the Great Pyramid, which is still yielding up new secrets to us. Only yesterday we found out that there was a new big room over the entrance that no one had dreamt of. And when you think of the kind of brains and technology that the ancient Egyptians had, it is mind-blowing. It's really extraordinary that they could do this kind of stuff and that they could be so creative as well as technical, as well as having a sort of religious and metaphysical reason for doing a lot of what they did. I heard that you accomplished your dream of skydiving over the pyramid. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you tell us about that? I had always wanted to skydive and I had a bad fall and I've had a lot of operations and I kept thinking, oh, will I ever get to skydive? And then just by chance, I found out that there was a skydiving event over at the pyramids and a, a dear friend of mine who, Katya, who works at the Brooklyn Museum and is a skydiver said, It's happening. I'll give you the contact. And so this was my first and so far only skydive. And it was magic. It was just magical because I thought I might be terrified. And the first minute of being, you know, falling out of the plane, there was a second of... And then I saw the pyramids. And then suddenly it was just like fantastic. And even the, the free fall bit, watching them. And then we got to do the manipulating with the parachute. And one could understand so much more about how it was all laid out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see photographs, but it's not quite the same. And then just being in the air so free and being able to fly 
It's one wow. of my dreams. It was just the best thing ever. I have a question because you, you so often in your life, in your professional life, you look at objects and imagine a story. You know, when you go in someone's house, there's always a drawer with a lot of little objects that you don't know where to put. Do you have the reflex when you see a little object to imagine a story or how did it end up there and what human activity is related to that object or something? Oh, yes. It's a terrible habit. <laughs> when you go to people's houses, one is constantly imagining entire life histories, biographies of objects. Hmm. And of course, I also love going to secondhand stores. It mm -hmm. has to be interesting or curious or beautiful. And then, of course, the story will emerge that will make it so much more exciting. We should uh, invite you to a show. And before you see the show, Ooh, we could show yes. you a few props and say, okay, from that, that prop, can you imagine what is the story we're going to tell you in a few minutes? And then we compare You know, that would maybe be your story will be better than ours. No, never. <laughs> In a minute, I'm going to continue this conversation with Dr. Salima Ikram. She's a professor, archaeologist, author, and the founder of the Animal Mummy Project at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. I can't wait to ask her about her work with the mummified lion cub. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for ClubSec today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. Just as a quick reminder, you're listening to Cirque du Sound, a podcast about the many origins of creativity from Cirque du Soleil. My name is Michel Aprise. If you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll tell your friends about us and leave us a review. Of course, I would love to hear from you. Dr. Salima, I think it's fascinating how exploring our past and some of our older innovations like mummies and pyramids can lead us to better understand our present and maybe even hint at our future. Here's a clip from our documentary, Behind the Curtain of Mystère. In this clip, David Suzuki, who is a famous Canadian scientist and environmentalist, I know you know him, talks about the importance of preserving knowledge. You know, we're worried today that 50% of all animal species may be gone by the end of the century. But 50% of all languages of people may be gone by the year 2050. And when you think of the knowledge that's embodied in the cultures that each of those languages have, science will never reproduce the knowledge of indigenous people. And when we lose them, at the rate we're losing them, we lose knowledge that is tens of thousands of years old. And that, to me, is a terrible tragedy. What do you think of what you just heard? Is, is this loss of knowledge something you think about as you study the lost civilizations of the past? I do wonder about the loss of knowledge. And I mean, nowadays, of course, In the old days, we had things that were tangible. Mm -hmm. For the ancient Egyptians, it was written in stone and on wood. So that's really tangible. And then we went to paper and photographs and so on. But now, how do we record our knowledge? 
It's all on computers. Uh How do we keep it? There isn't even the same tradition of passing things down orally, which was such a strong component. I mean, I hope that you tell your your four and a half year old daughters, do you tell them stories? Oh, yeah. Every night. Well, see, that's the one way of, of making sure that ideas and traditions and culture survives because it's the oral tradition that's going to work for us now. And I do think that these things become less and less as people become busier and less aware of how valuable these are. Mm -hmm. Because I think nowadays people don't understand the importance of history. Universities are shutting down departments. And I mean, your own personal histories are important. So telling your kids Mm -hmm. about your own past, your parents and so on, fits into the bigger picture of human history. Uh And I think it's crucial for us all as human beings to understand how to be better people and how how we fit into a larger fabric of society, both within a nation, but also within the world. In a smaller scale, I remember when uh, we would go to a log house in the summertime and we would ask my dad about his childhood, bombard him with questions. And and then he... He told my mom, I didn't know they would be interested because he was really poor living on the land, you know, and his, his father illiterate, but building his own house. And my mom said, this is this is where they are from. And he said, oh, I never thought it did because to me it was all suffering. Said, yeah, with suffering, it, it has a message in itself and, and brings courage and gratitude. So, uh, yeah, kids love stories and not just invented stories, but like, Where does this come from and what's what's behind that? Their real past, because it's a gift to them, because you are giving them themselves. Why do you think it's important to understand the past? Not just to know about it, but to understand it, uncover all those mysteries, whether it's animal mummies or normal person's routine. Some of it, of course, is just plain old curiosity. (laughs) But it's also important to understand, you know, explore ideas. Why did we do something? How did we come to this place? Was this a good idea or a bad idea? And if it's been done before and it turned out badly, maybe we shouldn't do that one again. So I think just exploring and maybe sometimes it sort of fizzes and you suddenly have a new great idea because of something that you study from the past. So I think that it is really a crucible for understanding yourself, understanding history, and coming up with ideas about the future as well. Hmm. It's funny because I have the chance to work with a lot of uh, creators, and the most innovators very often are big researchers. And again, this morning I was talking with someone, uh, a set designer, and I said, what's your process? He says, well, I start by doing a lot of research. And from that, I get inspired. So the Egyptians were really good at embalming, making mummies, also at writing down the symbols that told the stories of their daily lives. How can modern people preserve a culture that's currently happening so we can make it easier on the archaeologists of the future? Well, I mean, it's quite funny in a way, because nowadays when I look at emojis, Mm -hmm. I think modern day hieroglyphs. My God, it's true. You can write entire sentences and they are universally understood. For me, one of the big problems is that 
we don't have material stuff. Mm -hmm. And as an archaeologist, it's the materiality that makes a difference. And when you don't have written down things on paper, I keep thinking, how am I going to ever access this? Because already, you know, you have something in Word that was written in 1995 and you need a special program to be able to extract it mm -hmm. from an ancient computer. Mm -hmm. So that that does trouble me. And I wonder how we are going to deal with this. And this is something that a lot of people who deal with archaeology and history and archives are struggling with. I mean, one wonderful thing, for example, though now is, but that is also a problem, you know, with the Cirque du Soleil, you can record it and you've got television or, you know, recordings. But will we have the ability to access these images because it's also digital? And I don't know if that would be the case because we can still have very old machines that do real film. But what do we do with something that is embedded in the digital world? And, and how do you access it? Do you, do you even know that it exists? It's not like when you it stumble and ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> it keeps you awake at night. <laughs> it does actually, <laughs> moderately. <laughs> Our show Mystère places a lot of focus on human curiosity and determination and how, no matter how impossible something seems, humans almost always manage to overcome it. We get curious, we innovate, and we come up with solutions. Thinking about the pyramids, I'm sure the ancient Egyptians had to come up with a lot of creative solutions to build them but we still don't fully understand all the aspects of their construction. So there are still some mysteries there. Is that right? Absolutely. And the most recent work of trying to understand the pyramids has revealed that indeed, we still don't know the internal structure of the Great Pyramid at Giza. Because, of course, for us, it looks like solid stone. Mm -hmm. And so if there are passages and chambers, we can't always know where they are. And it's amazing that the ancient Egyptians created this thing. And it's really such a three-dimensional entity with, you know, with a house, you can go from room to room. But over here, not so much. It's sort of solid or apparently solid. And some of these chambers are very hard to get into. So once they were made, they were almost sealed up. So you've got oh, really? five above the Great Pyramid's burial chamber, which we knew about. But then there are all sorts of other things that are turning up, like the one above the chevron-shaped entrance, which is the newest discovery. Before that, they found channels that do not seem to go outside, but they are one going to the north, one going to the south, and they're not even straight. They're dog-legged. So, you know, the metaphysical reasons for this, as well as maybe the practical reasons, and as well... How did they actually do the construction is yet another kettle of fish. So the Great Pyramid is still yielding up mysteries. It's really the most extraordinary structure in the universe. I mean, the pyramids evolved over time. And in fact, we have the greatest pyramids were built, you know, at Giza, Saqqara, Dashur. But we have pyramids basically going from the north of Egypt, from what is now Cairo, all the way to Aswan. Mm. And they vary in size and shape. And by the time you get to about 1500 BC, 
normal people started having small pyramids built over their tombs. Really? Sort of looking more like, you know, Toblerone pieces mm -hmm. than big fat pyramids. Everyone who could afford it, afford it hmm. was mummified. As far as we can tell, if you were very poor and you couldn't afford mummification, you would do your best. You would put the person into the sand and actually often they would naturally mummify better than if you had done mummification. Really? And you would give them grave goods and you would try and say the prayers that were necessary. So if you did that, they had a good shot at an afterlife. Fascinating. How important is creativity when it comes to your own personal work with animal mummies? Well, I think sometimes one has to be creative about how to study them and also try and get into the mindset of the ancient Egyptians mm. as to why they were doing certain things. And when one is trying to figure out the recipe for mummification, that's when one gets very creative and uh, experimental. For a couple of classes, I have done experimental mummification because we bought things from the butcher. So it was not something that wasn't going to die. And we've mummified rabbits and sheep. And then my students started to bring me their pets when they died. So we got a few mummified cats. One of them is in my lab. Okay. And people, her owner comes and visits her. That's and cute. then. We actually have a pet cemetery at the university no. where we have buried some people's pets. And one or two of them just took their own pets home. Right. So. Super interesting. In the Netflix documentary, Secrets of the Saqqara Tomb, Dr. Salima, you found the first mummified lion cub. How did you figure out it was a cub? Well, I was invited by Dr. Mustafa Waziri, the director of the expedition, to examine these animal mummies. And they brought it in front of me. And it was quite large. It was bigger than a cat. And then we were x-raying it. So we x-rayed it. And then also I was looking at the wrappings and they drew the face on. And between the x-ray, which looked, it was a it was young animal, but large. And I thought, oh my God, the dentition, the teeth all look yeah. like they might belong to a lion. But the head was a little bit crushed and the size looked right for, you know, a big cat. And then I looked at the wrapping and it, it had the expression, you know, the little frowny things yeah. that lions have. Yeah. And it was painted on there. Oh. So it was just, it was amazing. They paint on the textile wrapping. They basically uh -huh. painted some of the funny expressions that wow. you would get on a lion cub's face. And so we figured out looking at the x-rays that it was a probably a female lion because it had no baculum and was quite young and was dedicated to the lioness and cat goddess Bastet. So, which is where it was found in the temple enclosure. Oh, wow. It's Saqqara. So it was magnificent. I imagine actually that maybe the cub was kept as a temple animal mm. and then it had died and so they took it and mummified it and gave it to the goddess as an offering because the goddess in her fiercer uh -huh. moments uh -huh. is a lioness and in her calmer moments is a cat. Really? Well, I have a few colleagues like that. <laughs> the Egyptians were very aware of the sort of bipolarity <laughs> of human nature. <laughs> in Mystère, our acrobats perform death-defying stunts like in a way they're risking their lives in order to bring this story to life. 
but they do it all because they're passionate about it. I think archaeologists are a bit like our acrobats. They often undergo a lot of strenuous activities in order to uncover ancient truths. You spend days in the desert, maybe even enter unsafe areas, and you risk being exposed to curses and maybe even angering the ancient gods. Why do you risk your life, your present, to understand someone else's past? Well, I mean, I have fallen off a four-meter-high cliff because I was trying to copy an inscription, which was a little bit more exciting than I wanted. (laughs) But I don't think most of us really believe in any of these curses. I think because most of the time we go in with respect. So Mm. we are trying to do something that will be positive. Yeah. We don't go in with a malign idea. At Cirque du Soleil, one source of creative inspiration we often turn to when creating our shows is mythology. Actually, when the team of creators were working on Mystère, they were consulting the books of Mr. Campbell. And it was a huge, huge source of inspiration. Today, there's so many modern adaptations of ancient Egyptian mythology, stories of pharaohs and queens, and of course, we cannot forget about the, the curses. You know, it, it makes good Hollywood movies. We see so many fictional retelling of those old stories in video games and comic books and movies. And you've actually contributed to some of this, right? You, you were an advisor on Universal Pictures' The Mummy. And you've also written a line of children's book as well. What role do art forms like movies, video games, and comics play in terms of helping us understand the old stories or sparking an interest in archaeology? I think it depends. I mean, I think a lot of these movies and books and comics and games now do spark an interest in the mythology in particular. Uh-huh. And that sometimes leads people into a more serious study of ancient Egypt or whatever culture it is. And sometimes it's just, you know, a lot of stuff is not quite Not very accurate. But on the other hand, the fact that it makes people interested, Mm -hmm. I think, is always a plus point. Sometimes I wish it wouldn't be so curse-driven, but um, I still think that it is valuable. And there are a lot of, you know, like the Assassin's Creed and all of these other games. I think it pulls people in. And, you know, there's a generation of people out there that became or we're interested in archaeologists because of Indiana Jones. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of pull that these movies have, and a lot, they make a big impression on people, and I think also the games do a lot, because people who are involved with gaming often love the idea of these alternate worlds. Yes. And the past ah. is an alternate universe anyway. You're right. Have you ever been personally inspired by any mythical retelling, like, Was there a book or movie about Egypt that caught your attention as a kid? You mentioned that the ignition started with one book. What was that book? I'm afraid it was. uh, It was the Time Life book of ancient Egypt. Oh, my God. Okay, that's a good one. Why are you laughing? Well, you know, it's a a bit mundane, but my interest in the Minoans came about because of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Tanglewood Tales and the retelling of the Theseus myth in particular with the Minotaur. That's beautiful character, Minotaur. I want to thank Dr. Salima Ikram for joining me today. Dr. Salima, it's been such an enlightening conversation. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Cirque du Soleil's shows. 
Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. Remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Sit to Sound. I am Michel Lapiste. À la prochaine. Sit to Sound is produced by Sit du Soleil with technical and story production by Jar Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 